Chapter 15 that we're in this morning is probably one of the most well-known sections of Luke's gospel. Um, most of us are familiar with the story of the one, of one sheep out of the 99 who gets lost. And we're, most of us are familiar with the, the lost coin. And if we read on, we would have got into the uh, parable of the two sons. And uh, you don't even need to be in a church to have heard the phrase, ah, you know, the return of the prodigal son. But the real object in this chapter, the real object and point of focus in this chapter is not uh, sheep, it's not coins, it's not even two rebellious sons, but a prodigal God. And the word prodigal in this sense here means extravagant. Um, His character and his heart towards lost objects, towards lost people. Whether they are lost by cluelessness, they just simply don't know. Whether they are lost due to carelessness, they just don't take initiative. Or or willfulness, willfulness, they just don't care. They're all about their own self-discovery and they willfully actually ignore God. All of humanity and religion has held that the way out of all of these lost states is that we must do better, that we must be better, that we must become uh, something worthy, to fulfill, uh, come into conformity of some kind of description that, that would make us worthy of the God that we're pursuing. In this chapter... Uh, which were our three movements, we just read the first two, Jesus is actually confronting and turning upside down how uh, humanity, and in particular these religious leaders, understand how it is that we come into acceptance by God, how, how that happens. Tim Keller points out that Jesus is turning every religion and all secular thought and every human idea of how to approach God on its head that our ideas of how to approach God and understand God are intuitively wrong. Through these three connected stories, Jesus shatters all the existing categories on God and, and what kind of uh, a person God likes, what kind of a, a person God approves of, God, God loves. You know, when Christianity first emerged <clears throat> into the Roman world, Romans called Christians atheists. Because what they had to say about God was so radically different from all existing ideas, it could hardly be classified uh, as a religion under their contemporary thinking, under their contemporary understanding of of how to know and approach God. But before it turned the Roman world upside down and the rest of the world along the way, Jesus took a wrecking ball of unmerited grace through the pervading uh, understanding and, and thinking about God held by his own people. Like he got into them first before it ever went anywhere else. It's this idea that was held and promoted by those who saw themselves <clears throat> as the spiritual leaders and shepherds of Israel. Phil Riken got a great commentary. He points out that according to Jewish rabbis and teachers, Salvation and acceptance from God came only to sinners once they'd turned back to God in, in practice. Uh, it was their acts of repentance uh, um, acted out through demonstrations uh, of duty and ritual. Their act of cleaning themselves up, that would be uh, what would restore God's favor. In other words clueless coins and careless sheep and willfully bad sons 
had to find their own way back to God. God does not seek them. They must find him. They must become worthy of God's approval via doing certain duties, uh, performing in certain ways. And now this, of course, stands in complete inconsistency with the picture that Scripture presents of God as a good shepherd who goes after his lost people and gathers and cares for people who have no desire at all to change. We read about that through Psalm 23 and Psalm 80 and Isaiah 40. And it is in complete consistency with the picture that Scripture gives us and presents us in places like Ezekiel 34 of the lack of shared concern for the lost, for those who are far from God, held by Israel's leaders, um, described as bad shepherds by Ezekiel. He says, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back. My sheep were scattered all over the face of the earth with no one to search for them. There's been a dereliction of responsibility. There's been a, a loss of um, shared concern for people. So in Ezekiel, we find God saying, well, I myself will search for my sheep. I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among the sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from the places where they have been scattered to. Anyone with a a basic working knowledge of the Old Testament like this crowd that's now around Jesus would be familiar with these texts. But it seems that the application uh, of them has been somewhat concealed behind the very thing they confront, the self-righteousness of the religious leaders that leads to a lack of a real picture of God's heart, of a real picture of his character and his concern for all people, regardless of whether they are clueless or careless or willfully living in ways that have no affection for God. An irony not missed by Jesus as he speaks to the religious leaders who think they are the standard of what is required to gain favour with God. Better turn my little thing on. When Jesus actually arrives walks on to human history, claiming to be the human personification of God and his promises, the good shepherd, with a mission statement that says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. And then later in Luke, we've already looked at that, in, but then later in Luke 19, he says, I have come to seek the lost. It is inevitable that his presentation of the character and the heart of God towards sinners was going to clash with that of the Pharisees and the scribes who rather than searching for the lost sheep of Israel the Pharisees and the scribes have been misleading them by holding up their practices of piety and law keeping as the standards that attract God's affection so so they're saying hey look at us come to us see what we're doing rather than hey you just you just need to be introduced to the character and the heart and the goodness of God So they become deeply offended and and concerned when they see Jesus, who's been making claims about equality with God, associating with people who did not keep God's law the way that they did, including even people who were just simply not religious at any level. But this was typical of Jesus, says Riken, 
He always seemed to attract the religious outsiders and those who would not feel welcome or comfortable in a church, which is one of the main reasons why the religious insiders complained so much about his ministry. I think it's Andy Stanley who said, people who were nothing like Jesus liked Jesus. And Jesus liked people who were nothing like him. And the reason for this is that in Jesus we find the very character and heart of God. In Jesus we find the compelling reason to repent and change our attitude towards God. In Jesus we find the very reason to become like Jesus. So he says to these muttering Pharisees, actually we read there, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So, so he has fellowship with them. He's comfortable around them. He, he doesn't mind sitting at a table with them and having a chat about where life's at. As far as the scribes and the Pharisees were concerned, sinners and tax collectors were outside of Israel, outside of the faith, outside of God, unlike them, the insiders. So they're, they're muttering about how could somebody really, who claims to be God and about God, be, be, be having fellowship with this crew? But as far as Jesus was concerned, however, their sorry condition was exactly the point that needed addressing. These outcasts are the lost sheep, the ones the law actually directs you to go and to rescue, to care for, to heal, to bring in and display the character and the love of God towards. It is the muttering disapproval of these religious leaders towards Jesus that leads Jesus to tell this series of parabolic stories. Jesus will tell this accumulating parable. It, it's, it's really just one big parable with three accumulating steps uh, to reveal the heart of God towards the lost. It seems that just as the crowds of the would-be followers in chapter 14 needed to have their superficial allegiances to Jesus consolidated with counting the cost of following him. Remember, we looked at that, what it what it really costs to follow Jesus because they've got these superficial, like, who cares kind of attitudes. The Pharisees and the scribes need quite the opposite lesson. Their pride and presumption based on their sacrificial lifestyles needed to be confronted with the reality of God's special mercy, his love for the lost. And perhaps the most shattering lesson is that religious and irreligious are equally lost. And Jesus begins by saying, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after that sheep until he finds it? And by telling the par- this first parable, Jesus is drawing his listeners into a difficult dilemma. The value of one wayward sheep against the ongoing care of the 99 seemingly compliant ones. The cause for the lost sheep is unknown. We don't know whether like a wild dog has dragged it off or it's just wandered off on its own accord. Could be a radically progressive sheep choosing to identify as a lion. We don't know why the sheep's gone. But, but its fate is certain. Its fate 
is as certain as the weight of mathematics and the cost of its rescue begin to stack up against the feasibility of leaving the 99 to take care of themselves. However, despite all the reasons why the shepherd could simply write off just, you know, one sheep, he's got a hundred, Jesus assumes that his hearers would agree with his approach of going after the lost sheep. He just said, doesn't he leave the 99? Of course he's going to leave the 99. This one sheep receives all the resources of the shepherd as he goes on a quest to find it. Here Jesus is saying that God has a heart of of determined, patient endurance toward the lost. He is unprejudiced in his concern for, for their rescue. And with patient endurance, he seeks until he finds. But merely finding the lost is not the end of God's um, action toward the lost sheep. When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and he says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost sheep. Now the true cost comes into view as the shepherd bears the burden of the rescue and carries the lost sheep home. Here Jesus paints this picture of of God who applies his strength gently to the sheep. Uh, who, who we see this picture of substitutional cost, of, of shouldering the burden of rescue. The quest complete, the burden born, this shepherd now celebrates. Here is a picture of the exuberant joy of God towards the salvation of one individual sheep. I tell you in the same way, There will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. How does God feel about the lost? Well, he doesn't ask how they got lost. He doesn't ask that we show some kind of worthiness to go and be rescued, some kind of indication it's a worthwhile investment to go and find us. He just dials all his resources, all of his attention into a quest to find the one who is lost. And then he bears the burden of bringing them home. And then once home, once they are part of the family, he's celebrating like the Denver Nuggets have just celebrated after securing the prize of their endeavors. He goes public, celebrating the inclusion of the lost back into the family. God is not coy. He is not ashamed. He, 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 he's not backing away from finding you a place at the table. Unlike the Pharisees, God does not sit in corners questioning your inclusion or the inclusion of outcasts. He celebrates their changed conditions with great joy. Far from expecting us to make ourselves valuable and worthy of God's acceptance, God shows our value in his pursuit of us. God bears the burden of restoring us, and he just loves it. This is the joy of his heart. Do you ever think about God like that? Just irreducibly and permanently happy about the fact that that he's found you and rescued you 
and brought you into this family? Or do you feel like you have to work hard to stay in his good books? The grace of God is how you were rescued. The grace of God is how you move forward in faith and participate in his plan and delight in his goodness as as he continues to delight in you. What hope this gives to anyone who is lost in the spiritual wilderness, who has wandered away from God, who, or who has been wounded by the chaos of this sinful world. Jesus gives us a picture of God who patiently endures to find us, gently bears us, and he takes the burden, and then joyfully celebrates our finding, our restoring, and our place in the family. What security this gives to the sheep he has already found that are already perhaps part of the 99 back at home. That the good shepherd is willing to seek any one of them who would wander off or become a, a casualty of their circumstances. Kenneth Bailey says this in his commentary on this. He says, It is the shepherd's willingness to go after the one that gives the 99 their real security. <clears throat> if one is sacrificed in the name of of the larger good of the group, then each individual in the group is insecure. They know that they're individually, they are of too little value if lost. They will be left to die. But when the shepherd pays a high price for just one, he thereby offers the profoundest security for the many. Like everybody is valuable. Jesus moves on and he continues to build a picture of a prodigal God, an extravagant God, one of unmerited love and grace based in his character, not biased or prejudiced by ours. It's the kind of picture that John would later write on in his letter, letters in John 1, 4. He says, this is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That's the quest. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. There's the burden. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. This is the outcome. Getting back to Jesus' story, he says... Or suppose a woman has ten silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? In this section of the parable, it parallels the first. Only now Jesus asks his listeners to consider a woman who has lost one of her ten silver coins. Perhaps the first thing that would cause a little more muttering amongst the Pharisees and the religious leaders and the scribes is that Jesus chooses... Uh, the image of a housewife to depict God in this parable. But once they're through the shock of that, they quickly identify with that sickening feeling of significant loss. Here, a full day's wage. And we can all kind of identify with that. Who hasn't misplaced a wallet or a phone? Or if you're like me at the moment, your passports, uh, you and your wife, that were actually found last night, so joy. Lockie casually says, oh, I know where they are. I've been looking for them for ages, walking around, turned the place upside down. He goes, I know where they are. And he just went and got them. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) well, this woman 
It consumes you. It consumed me until Lockie came to the rescue. This woman's search for what is lost mirrors that of the shepherds. As she sets about this diligent process of finding her lost coin, her house presumably has a dirt floor and no windows. So it isn't the easiest environment to go and find a missing coin in. So it must be swept clean and illuminated by a lamp. And you can just picture her in there on her hands and knees, in the dirt, sweeping things up, getting into every little crack and corner to ensure that nothing is overlooked, that no little space is not searched to find this coin. And perhaps we can see here in this image of how God is the one getting himself dirty as he deals with the sinful condition of our hearts that keeps us separate from God. Sin is not swept under the carpet, rather it is brought out into the light and removed through the activity of God in our hearts. And when she finds it, She calls her friends and her neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, same as with the shepherd, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Her diligent and her careful personal search meets with the same success as the shepherd's. And she too goes public with her joy and she calls together all her friends to share in it. A picture that Jesus once again says what happens amongst the angels of heaven over one sinner who repents. It's not muttering. It's not worrying about the optics of of whether this person's going to make us look good. It's just joy, unspeakable joy. It's not difficult to discern where these two parables intersect uh, with the situation in which Jesus told them. He's offering an explanation for the, and a defense for his behavior to pursue fellowship with tax collectors. And tax collectors were about, like you read it, tax collectors and sinners. Sinners are one thing, but tax collectors are just traitors to the, to the, um, to the people of Israel. They've sold themselves out and they're promoting Rome and taking money from their own people. So they are not uh, liked. And that is why it scandalized the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. But now Jesus is giving a defense for why he acts the way he does. Why he sees the condition of the irreligious outcasts, like the Pharisees would see the condition, sorry, of the irreligious and the outcasts as something that that's more of a virus that needs to be isolated rather than something that needs to be introduced to the love of God that would then um, lead a heart to repentance. Which is why Paul writes in Romans 2.4, Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you to repentance? Like, like nobody ever really repents because you beat the living suitcase out of them with guilt and shame. That's short-lived stuff. That, that kind of thing leads to people feeling like they've got to work, work, work. But when you are introduced to the kindness of God, to look at you and to sweep clean the mess and whatever of your life and still move toward you with love, well, that's a different motive, isn't it? 
Jesus, for his part, depicts his love of those who are far from God in the terms of the love and delight that we have at finding lost stuff. And if we delight in finding lost stuff like material things, like, like, like sheep, stock, and phones, and passports, how much more should we expect God to delight when people who are lost in sin repent and are brought back home? Jesus is confronting the religious leaders with their failure to understand what brings God joy, what his character is like, and how that sees him act with prodigal, with extravagant love to bring about repentance and deep heart change. But he's also setting an opportunity for them to see their lostness. If they don't know God this way, as he's, as, through his love and his grace as the only means to rescue and restore the condition of their hearts, then they don't really know God at all. This is the challenge being pushed across the table. The unfolding irony here is that fortified with their own self-righteousness, they cannot see Jesus' call to repentance as a call to them as well. They are oblivious to the fact that they too need to be found. Jesus will make this painfully clear in the next movement of the parable of the two lost sons and the the prodigal father. We don't have time to get there today to get to the two brothers and how God moves towards their lost states. But we have enough of a picture with part one and part two of these parables to see that at the center of these stories is not lost sheep, is not lost coins, but a passionate search that is underway by God whose love drives him towards the lost. How are we to understand God? What is the love of God like? Well, it's like a good shepherd who values every sheep, who goes to extreme places to find them, who bears their burden of their restoration. The love of God is like that sick-to-the-stomach feeling of a woman as she realizes that something of importance in her house has gone missing and no effort will be spared in order to retrieve what is lost. These stories explain the ministry of Jesus, but they also give us insight into the heart and the character of God. They let us know that it is love for the lost that is driving the divine rescue party the heaven-sent search party that Jesus is on, the good shepherd, the diligent housekeeper. Jesus has come to return sinners to fellowship with God. The extravagant love act by which this is achieved is, is by exchanging his life for ours on the cross. There Jesus bears the burden of sin that enslaves us into our lost states. It is the burden that leads to great celebration as Jesus is raised from the dead, securing and vindicating his right to bring lost people to the same place that he now has of acceptance and fellowship with God. That is the radically unique counterintuitive claim of Christianity. God serves us in our salvation. It is his extravagant, relentless goodness and love that pursues us and once we've been found by it once our hearts have been captured by it and shaped by it repentance of our clueless careless 
and willful mistrust and disregard of God seems like the safest and most joyful thing that we can do. Do you know God like this? A God who delights in your rescue. And not just the rescue, but the real joy of having you home, of having you in the family, of knowing you eternally, and being able to sit at his table. The recognition of your lostness is all that you need to contribute to your salvation. The rest is the extravagant love and grace of God. Let's pray. Loving God, we thank you for these two little parables um, that just give us a window into your heart and your character. That you are pursuing people who are unaware, who are uninterested or willfully uh, living um, with indifference towards you. We see the picture of your love for us presented to us in the person of Jesus. And we've been, this is an accumulated picture by the time we get to this chapter in chapter 15. And all your heart for us is seen in this, this man. And the depth of your love is seen in the fact that he would die for us. And then the joy of your one of us is seen in the fact that he is raised to life and is offering an inclusion into that space. Would you warm our hearts with affection for this uh, prodigal God who loves us in this, in this way? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.